Hi, Katie. How are you? Well, um, I'm a little preoccupied about the ongoing pandemic and the uncertainty surrounding that. But considering yeah. those circumstances, um, I guess hanging in there, how about you? About the same. I think today I realized that I really need to stop looking at the news every two minutes because it is not changing that much. And it's not making me any more productive or helping me prepare any better than more already hoarded all the food that I can and as much ready as I'm going to be. So I think it's better to start focusing on other projects and things that uh, need tending to, which includes yeah. our podcast. I agree because I'm hoping that even though we don't know when things are going to, I mean, go back to normal it might be a right. strange way to put it, but have some more normalcy restored. I'm, I'm counting on that happening, and I think it's important to, like you said, shift attention to other things from time to time, because once you've done everything that your anxiety is signaling to you to do, uh, it's it's good for your mental health to take a break from that. Yeah, yeah, and I think on that note, um, we maybe we can continue with the theme that we've had uh, and continue with the podcast, with the with our psychodrama motif. We'll continue exploring uh, what has been going on uh, in the world of entertainment with the relationship to Me Too. And somehow we both have focused on, we decided that um, a third episode would be, a good third episode would be to follow up on Louis C.K., uh, whom is now touring again, uh, much to some people's chagrin. But uh, it also, to me, is interesting because at the same time, in we, we've mentioned and we've talked about the idea of restorative justice in uh, the podcast before. And to me, it's, inter- it's an interesting kind of borderline case, if you want to think about it that way, uh, in which it is difficult to say what should happen because the cases, the, his behavior may not be as egregious as Weinstein or Bill Cosby. Uh, and yet, uh, so that it would perhaps result in charges uh, in prison, but then what should he be doing, and who is in charge of saying what what should he be doing, uh, is part of the controversy. Exactly, and I I think that you know part of why we want to talk about this is is like we talked about in the first episode is kind of bring in what we know from psychological research and mm-hmm. a lens that kind of discusses these important issues because. The Me Too movement has been really important, and since our last episode was recorded, Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison. That's right. And I think that there, um, as more incidents are known, like with Louis C.K., the question is, okay, what would be the appropriate thing for someone like him to do before going back to work? And I think some people are on one side of it saying, you know, nothing because he Mm -hmm. negatively impacted these other comedians by his behavior, whereas other people are attending his shows. Well, Mm pre-pandemic now, I imagine that they're not doing, putting on his shows anyway. Um, And so... It took a coronavirus to rectify this injustice, I guess. No, seriously. (laughs) I mean, it's like that, because that, when's that article I sent you is like from... It's not that old. I think it's mm-hmm. less than a week ago, and it was about how 
you know, his shows were selling out and things like that. And now, I mean, they shut down the movie theaters and things like that. And so, and just from off the, if if you had, the question that I have for you is if you had your druther, so if you, we've made Katie emperor of the world, uh, what what would be your what would be your dictum? What would you say like okay, this is what should happen to Louis C.K. and this is what would be a just outcome before he can continue on? Or would you let him? I don't know where you where are you at. I think that um, I think that restorative justice would say those who he negatively impacted and affected by his actions would have a say in that and Mm. at least some of those who have spoke out don't feel that his apology for example was was adequate um that it wasn't didn't feel like it was fully taking responsibility but maybe we should take a step back because i have a question for you yeah yeah so we were you mentioned criminal charges right and i think that um this is something that i'm genuinely asking because i think now for example Indecent exposure would be a criminal charge, right? Yeah, that would be a charge. Very good. But in these situations, it seems different because on one hand, I think that, and I think Sarah Silverman got into some trouble Hot for the way she did because she mm-hmm. she said that he asked, so technically it's consent. But then at least one of the women who he masturbated in front of said, no, he asked, but then he just did it. He didn't. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't. Um, we didn't really have a choice in the matter. This was not with consent. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think any of them pressed charges or anything like that. Um, yeah. But where would this where would this typically fall? Would it? Yeah. Like sexual really harassment one. on the TV show set, I imagine, because I know one yeah. one time was that. But then after the show, I mean. You know, I, I I guess I you know I because here's Rebecca Corey um, asked if he could masturbate in front of her in 2005 when they were appearing in a television pilot together. Responded to Silverman's statements on Twitter. To be clear, CK had quote nothing to offer me end quote. As I too was his equal, and this on the set that day would he decided to sexually harass me. Yeah, he took away a day I worked. Um, he took away a day I worked for years years for, and still has no remorse. He's a predator who victimized women for decades and lied about it. Um, so, yeah, and then let's contrast that with Sarah Silverman's statement, which said, I've known Louis forever, and I'm not making excuses for him, so please don't take this that way. We are peers, we are equals when we were kids, and he asked if he could masturbate in front of me. Sometimes I'd go, fuck yeah, I want to see that. Um and, and to be clear, they just, weren't <laughs> actually kids. They were <laughs> right. Right. And to be clear, they were like in their twenties. Exactly. She means uh, in the proverbial sense of like they yeah. were younger in the biz, as opposed to more seasoned veterans that they are now. Uh, and then she follows. It's not analogous to the other women that are talking about what he did to them. He could offer me nothing. We were just only friends. And so that's a tough one. So I think from a from. I, there's two ways to, to answer your question. Yeah, if a person exposes themselves without the other person's consent, that would be indecent exposure. Uh, however, engaging in unwelcome sexual advances, behavior, or comments that can create a hostile environment would be sexual harassment. But that gets more into the civil aspects of the law mm. uh, and internal. And it's a tough one because the way to think about it, when I think about his case, I think more about uh the 
probably the way in which many men who engage in sexually abusive behavior of various sorts in which they justify their actions by saying, well, this person didn't object or that person liked it in the way that I, that very much the Weinstein defense was established, right? So part of the, Mm -hmm. part of Harvey Weinstein's defense was presenting texts and communications and emails from the victims um, in his case uh, and he's saying basically, yeah, we did have sexual relationships, but this was consensual. And it became, a, and this is part of the reason why many DAs and juries have a difficult time parsing out and you don't get a lot of these cases prosecuted because when when essentially the victim is in a way put on trial as well, uh, you have these two versions of, of what's going on. So it's a hard one. I, I so I yeah. In his case, he kind of straddles almost the two of them. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it sounds like it was you know frankly just sexual harassment. In some cases, it probably could have been uh, indecent exposure. Um, yeah, and in some cases, what well, like with Sarah, it appears it was also even consensual. Mm-hmm. So and somewhere in between, along all the that that continuum is where his behavior lies. Um, but it's not, it's, um, yeah, and it's a different, I would say, uh, it's a different category from the stuff that perhaps Weinstein was doing, which was actually forcing himself on people, holding them down, etc. Right. And so to be clear, um, of course, both you and I think that that's horrible behavior. And as I mentioned in a, in a past, uh, podcast where you were a guest, I, Actually, when I experienced sexual harassment at work, you were um, very supportive of me and a great advocate at that time when it was key. And so I think that, you know, we agree that Louis C.K.'s behavior is um, obviously negatively impacting these women. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It is. But it's not. I think that when you get the um, cases where it's rape or something like that, it can be clearer that people are on the same page in terms of what should be done. Um, especially in the case of someone who has um, raped multiple people like that, right. um, like Bill Cosby and Weinstein. So with Louis C.K., um, again, it wasn't pressing charges. People were speaking out and apparently, you know, speaking amongst each other before right. they were talking about it. And um, would you mind saying a little bit about, like, from a restorative justice perspective, not to do the old, like, therapist, you asked me a question, let me put it back on you, but I am <laughs> going to do that. Um, Hang on, let me get on a couch real quick. <laughs> I am actually going to put it back at you. Um, maybe, would you mind, I mean, I didn't understand a lot about restorative justice until I talked to you about it, and um, you sent me this great episode about this college case. Would you mind talking a little bit about that for listeners who yeah, aren't familiar with restorative justice? And to be fair, I'm not an expert on restorative justice either. I was actually introduced to it by a student who was very much into it. But essentially the idea of restorative justice is that it's uh, it's contrary to our system, which is focused on punishing. And in some cases, you know, punishing and ideally rehabilitating, but quite frankly, we just do a lot of punishing. Uh, and the idea is to put together, to uh, acknowledge that harm was done, first of all, uh, by the person who committed it. And then in a collaborative process between 
the person who was harmed and the person who did the harm to come up with a solution, uh, a, a way to put together the pieces of what is left in order to help them uh, restore as much as is possible their lives and continue on. Because the idea is that uh, a, a crime, you know, let's put it a crime or when a harm is done in somebody, uh, it harms not just the victim, uh, but also society at large and even the person who commit, who engages in it. So engaging in this holistic approach to try to put together everybody. So with the idea that uh, the person who does it is not just remorseful, and, but it acknowledges and finds a way to acknowledge the harm they've done and finds a way to not engage in the behavior again, which is ultimately uh, what we're trying to, to accomplish in general with retributive justice as well, which is our system. So that's in a nutshell what restorative justice is about. And I think it's great, and I, um, there's a lot of data that is starting co to come out given in support, and it has a lot of um, school systems, uh, the justice system in the juvenile justice system in the U.S. engages in a lot of restorative justice. And uh, in New Zealand, uh, part of the actual criminal justice system relies on restorative justice system. And uh, some in Canada and various, because restorative justice relies on a lot of uh, concepts from uh, native and tribal and uh, aboriginal concepts of justice, uh, it's uh, it's being applied in places in which there's a sizable population uh, of those ethnic groups. So that's basically it. The, and to me, it's really interesting because I, I consider that our, our justice system is long overdue for reform. And this seems to be a very promising approach uh, to help, and in the in this particular case, and certainly for sexual misconduct, um, it's so tough uh, in these cases because in many cases the victim in our in our retributive justice system may not want to go ahead with charges or that because of multiple reasons, embarrassment they want to live in the past or they're worried about retribution, whatever, uh, and it's difficult for. Uh, if the system then takes over for them. And it, it's not an un, un, unwarranted concern that they have because oftentimes people are um, vilified or persecuted. And as you will know, there's multiple cases in which a victim of sexual assault becomes vilified by even their whole community. So who would want to put themselves through that? Yeah, and that's I think, such a yeah. great point. I think yeah. that that um, the... The goal, because I I imagine I don't know if this has happened to, but when people first hear about it, they might object, like on a gut level, like no punishment, right. at the way that it currently is, is is justice, and that's how it should happen. But in reality, we know that that's not the way it pans out, and so restorative justice seems, when you're looking at like application of these principles, that that seems like it could offer an alternative to the current system with like what you said um accusers often would be reluctant to go forward with in the right. current system that's exactly right and then it doesn't provide a satisfactory answer or resolution for many of the victims and that's an interesting part of restorative justice is that some of the studies suggest that uh, victims who engage in restorative justice processes uh feel more like justice is actually done 
as part of it. And I'm always touched and interested and fascinated by cases in which the victim and the um, victimizer actually become acquaintances or friends thereafter. Uh, and it blows my mind. Um, yeah. There's there's a whole in Rwanda, there's a whole nationwide effort. Uh, and then there's kind of reconciliation villages in which people who engaged in actual ethnic cleansing live next to other people and are neighbors with people who were victims of it and are neighbors. And that it's so I mean, it blows again, it just blows to be very eloquent. It blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think that seems like a much better, much more productive way to to move forward in a world in which we would like to have better outcomes. So even if you are the kind of person who wants to have an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, there has to be, I would imagine, some appeal to the idea of, okay, well, wouldn't you want to have happier, healthier victims? And wouldn't you want to have less crime in general? Right, exactly. Because that is the key part of restorative justice, too, that it's mm-hmm. it does consider the perpetrator um, and how they're impacted, but also the accuser. So if in this hypothetical with Louis C.K., it it would, you know, going back to your original question, it means that the women who experienced that those unwanted sexual behavior of him masturbating in front of them, that they would have a say in what they expect. Because I think the way that it is right now, it can be boiled down to like, he should never have a career again, but how likely is that? Um, Or he can apologize and it's like, okay, well he apologized and it's over rather than, and and this is all complicated because it's obviously very much in the public eye. Whereas, like the example that you sent me that I thought was really oh sorry compelling. yeah the, but yeah you um, want to talk about that one yeah it was a a college case where it was freshman year of college and um, a woman and man were hanging out and it it seems like they I think that they were hooking up but she didn't she didn't want to have sex but he um, he he forced her to. And he didn't really realize that it was sexual assault or that it was non-consensual the way that it unfolded. But it's interesting because they ended up having, um, through a restorative justice process, coming to understand and talk about it. And then he became a kind of activist to prevent sexual assault by mm-hmm. openly talking about And they go saying, together, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's mind-blowing because he didn't, you know, after it occurred, he didn't think about it he just figured mm-hmm. they hooked up and he never heard from her he's like well okay but then he actually was going to become an ra for his university and as he's going through the process of learning about a sexual assault and how it occurs and the process of how men use uh, their size or mm-hmm. um, pressure and um, coercion basically mm-hmm. um, yeah coercion in order to uh to get the person to agree to have sex with them, even though they may not want to. And as he's going through the training, he realizes, like, holy crap, wait a minute, I may, I actually did this. And he realizes it contacts his victim, and then they decide to go through a restorative justice process approach that is being used at, at, at his university. And then they now together are activists. And it's such an interesting example because from from a from a negative situation right from a negative interaction 
he comes to a better place, she comes to a better place, and then they are now taking their experience together and growing for not just growing from it, actually using it in order to foster change in others that I that potentially could prevent many cases. And I'm like, that is the essence. That's the kind of the beauty of research approaches. And what brings me to that, I keep tying it to um, to this Lucy K uh, case, is because a lot of the articles that we've exchanged regarding the victims when they when they have to work in public. Uh, uh, it seems to me that a lot of the concerns that they have is that his apology per se was not particularly satisfying to them and um, they had no say in how how it played out and now while he continues on having a successful career uh, theirs is basically not necessarily going the same way absolutely that one article talking about like what happened to them where are they now and like you hear stories about this anecdotally and research and i can certainly imagine it where you when you're in a situation like that you get put off and don't want to be in that kind of situation again and in comedy it sounds like it's difficult um you know when they have those experiences and i think from the college um students that that we were just talking about there was a lot of time and effort before they started becoming activists together to prevent sexual assault that they were able to work through, you know, her comfort levels, what she wanted and all of those things. And the other key, I think, and I actually, I have his apology. I thought Mm. maybe we should just go through it because like one thing that struck me about that podcast episode is, and I don't know how it started off, but that he, he took, full responsibility without any caveats. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so um, should I read the apology or did you have something else that you want? No, no, that's that's <laughs> good. It, it, the one thing I'll, I'll put it for us and that I want to say before we end is at some point that I kind of put it, put a pin, in, pin, let's put a pin on it, that I keep tying it to the humor ethics mm-hmm. uh, that our, our guest in our previous episode talked about. And, um, how, there was one of the articles that you sent me talking about how a lot of the sh- in the show in the Louis show that he had on FX, uh, and I do, I think they, there was a there's a scene in which he essentially coerces the, his love interest in it, and how in light of these allegations, um, that scene has a very different connotation and it's really interesting to me to to you know for people who are artists or visual you know in a visual medium or whatever how they say you should, or an artist in general that you should uh you should talk about as or if you're a writer that you should talk about what do you know and it it seems it becomes so much more stark mm-hmm. to realize that he may be he may have had some awareness of the how he wrong his behavior was and he used it to, for as material for his show to make it even more real raw or impactful uh, so it's it's just really really interesting. But anyway, we can talk about that later. But yes. No, now that no now that now that <laughs> now you that brought up that extremely us. interesting point, <laughs> I I do I think I think that's something that we should address. Like so, one thing I mean, ethically, it, we shouldn't really diagnose people in most cases that we don't know personally. I haven't personally evaluated. I think that makes good sense. However. 
Um, one thing that I noticed in the coverage of him is I didn't see much discussion about the possible a possibility of him having a paraphilia. And I'm just wondering, did you see any of that in the coverage? No, I didn't see anything, but I did think about that. Uh, and whether it's a paraphilia or it's a tough one. It really is a hard one to, because I really can't, like you said, we haven't evaluated this person. That's a good one because it's from what I've heard. And I can't believe we know so much about, it's crazy. I have to mm -hmm. say, let's take a moment to appreciate how much we know about Louis C.K.'s <laughs> sexual proclivities for Christ's sake. My oh God. My God. I know. But I remember that he, he was, he was interviewed on, by Terry Gross on, on Fresh Air. And he was talking about how he, when he had sex with his girlfriend, he kept his shirt on because he was embarrassed. Like he felt bad for her to have to see him. Uh, because he's so unattractive and kind of you know, pudgy or whatever, and that surprised her uh, very much. But it's it's interesting because for him to meet uh, a paraphilia, he, he would have to be almost exclusive. You know, he was not able to enjoy or to have a sexual. Um, you know, the only way for him to and now I'm gonna have to look it up. I feel like a bad psychologist that I don't know this, but this is actually okay. what good it's psychologists. It's been a long day and a, and a rough. In the middle of the epidemic. Yeah. Uh, but and a good psychologist would always not just rely on his head. That's uh, right. Intense and persistent sexual interest other than sexual, other than sexual interest in general simulation or preparatory fondling with phenotypically normal physiologically mature consenting human partners. So I don't know. That's a tough one because I don't think that there's that. And then there's uh, of the common paraphilias that exist that aren't there are listed on the DSM-5. We should say, yeah, exhibitionism would be the closest one um, that needs it. Uh, but it doesn't sound like it was his only sexual outlet. Okay. So if it was, and I don't know how distressed or impaired he was. You know, we it, it certainly doesn't seem like he was impaired. No, and it did. It, it impaired him a, a briefly, right? Because they canceled his movie release. True, I guess but so. But it yeah, wasn't right. long. But long term, it, you're right. It wasn't. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? So had he never been caught, how impaired or distressed would he be by it? Oh, and his marriage also was very badly affected as well. What? Well, you know, I, this is interesting. So he was he married. Be during before after how how do you know how do we know this I, I thought he, I think he was married and his wife was pregnant at least during one of these times which um, I want to verify to make sure that's an accurate memory but I believe the woman that on the TV show said that he was pregnant and married at the time because she said that to him mm. and he was like yeah you're right when they were on set. Um, I don't know how strict the criteria is for that anyway, but one, but the reason I actually asked is because the thing I was wondering about one, and like you were saying, it's weird that we know all this information, but, um, Sarah Silverman's sister, I think dated Louis CK and she yeah, said she did. that, that even after they broke up, he was still, Me they'd too. be in a hotel room and he would like to her, this is one person's perspective, but she seemed to be informed and it's consistent with the other behavior saying he seemed to be kind of compulsive about masturbating while she was in the room, even when they weren't together that, it, you know, that, that aspect of it. But, but the reason I was asking is because do you think part of putting it in his show, is it writing what he knows or is that further part of 
some that's a good one yeah yeah uh, wow that's where things get almost quasi freudian right like you know, yeah that might be too up. far on the speculation situation <laughs> speculation. it's hard to say mm-hmm. yeah i would go with the uh yeah yeah it's hard it, it's almost impossible and it's almost like a metaphysic kind of philosophical question of like does the you know how much awareness does the person have how much insight does the person have on their own behavior and was he realizing that he was doing it as part of a paraphrase? So I would just go with the more, with the uh, the more. He seems right, a very, like a very insightful, yeah, exactly. More parsimonious answer okay. is that, yeah, I, that's what that would be my guess. But it's hard because we could imagine that I, I was, you know, interviewing him like, okay, Mr. CK, um, you know, do you were you doing it because of that? And he could say no, but mm-hmm. you know, we we don't have a real test. As what to you're whether, saying is it's not really falsifiable it's a very saying. it would be very difficult to falsify so right? let so i so i looked up when he was divorced it was 2008 and uh-huh. comedian rebecca Corey said that she was working as a producer and performer on their television pilot in 2005 and that's when she said louis ck leaned close to her face and said can i ask you something she said yes and then and then he asked if I could go to my dressing room, to my dressing room, so he could masturbate in front of me. Corey said no, and when she brought up his pregnant wife, his face got red, and he told me he had issues. So right, yeah. I so I think yeah. So there's some impairment there. I don't know if it has to do with the paraphilia or if it's more like infidelity so, or yeah. Or so here's the yeah here's the here's the other uh, the other kink in that. So <laughs> no pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> pun fully intended. Exhibitionistic disorder. So diagnostic criteria, I'm looking at up now from the DSM-5. So diagnostic criteria A, over a period of at least six months, recurrent and intense sexual arousal from the exposure of one's genitals to an unsuspecting person as mm-hmm. manifested by fantasies, urges, or behaviors. So if we wanted to be strict about it, uh, these people are not unsuspecting. Certainly not okay. Sarah or his former girlfriend. or Yeah, or... Um, I can't remember Sarah Silverman's sister's name. Uh, Laura, Laura Silverman, mm-hmm. um, or other people do whom he asked. However, um, you know, we, we could just say that that is a problem with the diagnostic criteria itself. Um, and and it did sound like they were it, surprised. It, yeah, right. B, that they were right. Yeah. The individual has acted on these sexual urges with a non-consenting person. Or the sexual urges or, fant- or, or fantasies cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So we could, you know, the best case we could say is kind of this is the criteria are flawed in a way. We could just perhaps expand them a little bit in order to include people who are doing it compulsively, right? So that that could be that honestly that could be perhaps the route is to say that he actually meets uh, what would be the equivalent of a of an impulse control disorder NOS and engaging in impulsive behavior, um, people would say like almost like a, akin to like a sexual addiction. Although you know that's a fairly controversial area as well. It uh, seems like there was some aspect of it that I don't know if it seemed out of control or if he just felt sure that it you know that people weren't going to find out or he wasn't going to be punished yeah. but it's you know you meant right now with him you're right though because there's it appears there was consensual and non-consensual experiences right. that he and had. that's my guess my guess is that he and again this is a complete guess is that people who engage in behavior kind of is that 
they're going to find people, you know, like Sarah Silverman who went in public and you mm-hmm. know, and, and Howard Stern and said, not only yes, but hell yeah. And I, what you're looking, what you're looking for, consent, like the, literally the definition of consent, an enthusiastic yes, which is what mm-hmm. he seemed to have gotten from her. And then it's easy then to imagine a person who has cognitive distortions about various things, uh, and especially with sexual behavior, to say, well, you know, they said no, but or they were surprised, or they didn't say no, so I took it as a yes, or they said yes. Uh, even that they said because they were uncomfortable or he was in a position of power and they were afraid that they were going to lose their job. So they said, sure, because they didn't want to appear like, you know, that squeaky wheel or they wanted to hang and not appear complainy. Or especially this is kind of what the, a lot of the victims have said, is that if within the context of um, st- with, of comedy, that's, you know, you need to have a tougher skin than average. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so not wanting to appear... Uh, week or whatever or not and then potentially sabotage their prospects and then and isn't that ter- isn't that a terrible position to be in right. i mean it's just as a terrible to to feel like you're going to be perceived in some negative way when his behavior is a behavior that's clearly out of line you know and i think that's something that the me too movement has brought to the fore right i, I think mm-hmm. women have been saying this for a long time so the movement has brought to the fore this idea that rather than jeopardize possible career prospects uh, or being retaliated, which is what we see frequently in in these cases, uh, women endure this kind of behavior in order to continue uh, working or whatever. And this is exactly what happened. And Louis, this, uh, and so in his in his in his response, he said these stories are true. Wait, wait, I got one more thing. I promise we'll get to that now, even though, but, but related to that, you know, I had texted you about that, um, Pete Davidson's, uh, standup. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to, to listen to it. You want to, you want to tell me a little bit about it? Well, the, the main thing of it, just, I think to speak to Louis CK's influence and power, because I think, (laughs) I mean, these women are absolutely right that it's, you know, um, you know, especially as he became more and more popular. I mean, just increased power and fame. So he was on Saturday Night Live, and I guess Pete Davidson smokes a lot of marijuana. He's pretty open about that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got some... Well, anyway, I won't go... That's another that's episode. That's not going to. He's, no. Let, but, let's, do a, let's do an episode about him later. That's, that's a good idea. But anyway, let's put it this way. He was smoking weed in his Mark dressing Lawrence. room, and then uh, Pete Davidson was, and Louis uh-huh. C.K., Per his, this is what Pete Davidson said on his stand-up routine on Netflix on his special, and he said that Louis C.K. was like in the elevator and like Pete got on the elevator and he was like pissed off that Pete was high, mm. and went to mm. Lauren Michaels and told on him. What? <laughs> That's what the story was, and so isn't that weird? That so is- then. So, I mean, this is Pete's story, and it's a stamp special, but, I mean, I I had heard him tell this story before, and I haven't heard Louis C.K. say otherwise, or maybe he's thinking, you know, <laughs> like, maybe I should I let this one go. I made a compulsive masturbator in front of unsuspecting and unwilling victims, but I am not a narc. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where he drew the line. Meredith Palmer is many things. Floozy, yes. Alki, check. <laughs> 
But if she ain't no narc. <laughs> Seriously. So Lauren called Pete into his office and was like, this was Pete's read on the situation. And he was high, so I'll take it for what it's worth. But he's like, I really don't think Lauren cared. I think that he was like, though, look, Louie is a big yeah, I, deal. I could be in an SNL smoking weed. Oh, my God. I no. know. Seriously. Like, come on. That's among the, the least. Chris Farley. <laughs> Seriously. I'm going to pour a little bit of water in my carpet here for them, actually. Yeah, exactly. So he said, so Pete felt like Louis was trying to get him fired. And yeah, and that he said he didn't, he was trying to read Lauren's facial expression, which was basically like, who knows? Again, he's just telling a story, but it was like, basically, he didn't seem like he cared, but he didn't want to like ignore Louis C.K.'s complaint. And so I was like, that does speak to the power and influence. And, you know, and Pete talks a lot about that, like here to him. It's like, if this big comedian doesn't like me, then I'm going to be in trouble. Like, I'm not going to be able to keep right. this job. No, I think that is that's a situation that we all can relate to. We've all mm-hmm. had a situation in our life in which uh, somebody said something uncomfortable or, you know, an ist of some sort, whether racist whatever just uh whatever and you're like oh my gosh that was horribly unprofessional but you know what i don't want to rock vote because this person is above me or whatever i'm like you know what i'm just gonna like write this out because and it's tough it's it's uh it's a hard one so yeah absolutely that and and this does come up in his apology which i promise now we can talk (laughs) but first let's tease out let's let's tease the listeners a little bit more before we get to that tantalizing apology by going through the unspecified disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder uh, criteria, which uh, would say this category applies to presentations in which symptoms characteristic of a disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder that cause clinical significant distress or impairment. I don't know if this is actually, I don't even know if this one fits because that one, it's the one that fits kleptomania uh, mm-hmm. And it has, you know, so right, kleptomania, intermittent explosive disorder, pyromania. So we could perhaps say that's an impulse control disorder, uh, unspecified. Um, but yeah, we would have to do a better. Again, we're engaging what we're not what we're not supposed to be doing, which is diagnosing somebody without ever. But we're using all the disclaimers. I think that's important. No, I just I think for all of the diagnostic speculation that goes on about people, that I was kind of surprised. To see, because I do think that that's part of the story. Like, we don't know for sure. It doesn't excuse the behavior. But I think for a lot of people, it's it's a little bit hard to imagine someone who would just repeatedly do this to other people who he's yeah. working with or he met that night. And I, so I, I do think that's part of the story, too. Yeah, there's a compulsive aspect of her, for sure. Um, or at yeah, least it appears that way from the yeah, outside. Yeah, and it maybe. seems like he responds with shame and embarrassment about it, and mm-hmm. then it's unable, and which is indeed the case for many people who engage in compulsive behaviors of this type, is that it's not that they're remorseless, mm-hmm. uh, kind of going around, ha-ha, uh, but rather go through this cycle very much like uh, as with, with, you know, and this is probably where people make the analogy with sex, sex addiction, uh, uh, in which they feel a, a sense of tension before they engage in the behavior. Then they engage in the behavior, the, 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 uh, the tension subsides, the person feels guilty, promise to themselves that they'll never do it again, then go a period of time, then the stimulus appears again, the tension arises, and so on, and, and repeat um uh, until well something happens mm-hmm. 
So, yeah. On that note, he does acknowledge it. Quote, these stories are true. At the time, I said to myself that what I did was okay because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first, which is also true. So let's pause I, there. Let me, you got it. So, so the, the reason I, from a sort of justice kind of point of view, it does seem like a key part is taking responsibility. So right. the, the, these stories are true is a good start. And he had denied the stories for quite some time. Right. Um, do you feel like that last sentence was a little bit like defending himself yeah. yeah perhaps but i you know uh without asking not not, not to mind to read but yeah 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 exactly it's hard to say but i, I think people or who minimize work in restorative justice right exactly people who work in restorative justice and certainly people who do um in in traditional sex offender uh treatments to get people to write a letter of apology essentially to their they would say that that what you're doing there is you're using language in order to minimize your your responsibility because mm. i know because i you know i did it with I, I never did it without asking so i'm like oh well oh in that case well geez how polite of mm. your um so yeah that, mm-hmm. that is true uh then what he says but i will learn what and i think it maybe it's to preface it you know like what i learned that in life too late is that when you have power over another uh, another person asking them asking them to look at your dick isn't a question it's a predicament for them. So perhaps it's a way for him to set up that way, but it would be like, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just saying that, say, uh, you can just, oh, you can always reward that. I would say, I guess that would be the way to say it. We can always reward it in a way to say that it doesn't sound like you're trying to minimize it. Mm-hmm. Um, the power I had over these women is that they admired me and I wielded that power irresponsibly. I have been remorseful of my actions and I have tried to learn from them, unrun from them. Now I'm aware of the extent of the impact of my actions. I learned yesterday the extent of which, to which I left these women who admired me feeling badly about themselves and cautious around other men who would never have put them in that position. Uh, I also took advantage of the fact that I was widely admired in my and their community, which disabled them from sharing their story and brought hardship to them when they tried because, when they tried because people who look up to me didn't want to hear it. I didn't, I didn't think that I was doing any of that because my position allowed me not to think about it. There is nothing about this that I forgive myself for. I have to reconcile it with who I am, which is nothing compared to the task I left them with. I wish I had reacted to their admiration of me by being a good example to them as a man and giving them guidance as a comedian, including because I admired their work. Uh, let's see. It's, okay, almost done. The hardest regret to live with is that is what you've done to hurt someone else. I can hardly wrap my head around the scope of, of hurt I brought on them. I'd be remiss to exclude the hurt that I brought on people who I work with and have worked with whose professional and personal lives have, have been implicated by all of this, including projects currently in production. So then he goes for a list of those. I deeply regret that this has brought negative attention to my manager, Dave Becky, who only tried to mediate situation, a situation that I caused. I've brought anguish and hardship to the people at FX who have given me so much. The Orchard, who took a chance of my movie, and every other entity that has, a, that has bet on me through the years. I've brought pain to my family, my friends, my children, and their mother. I have spent my long and lucky career talking and saying anything I want, 
I will now step back and take a long time to listen. Thank you for reading. And that was on 2017. So yeah, I guess the question for us that we're talking about is, you know, okay, so that was uh, two years and a couple of months uh, and three, four months. Um, is that enough? Did you take time, you know, enough time to be away and listen? Or is you going on tour already and talking about it in a way that some people take sound? Well, it started in 2019, so yeah, about two years. Um, that comes across as, you know, not necessarily particularly remorseful. Is that is that um, is that enough? Especially when, um, as the victims who of uh, of his behavior have pointed out, they are certainly not filling out uh, hallways or halls the way that he is. And I, I think part of what makes the public aspect of it hard is that if he had during that time these private conversations and tried to make things right in some way, then that would make things look different. I think that it looks different that w- if that information was available versus... He said this stuff, but then he's kind of waited a little while and kind of went back to it and then made light of the situation mm-hmm. where it, it makes him look less sincere. I right. think a lot, you know, I think that there's a lot in his apology that is good, acknowledging the harm that he caused. I think that's really important. There were some people who mentioned that he talks about them admiring him quite a bit. Um you know, again, I don't want to read too much into that, but that that maybe put some people off. And this is where I think it's like our opinions don't matter as much as the people who were as directly negatively right. impacted. And hopefully, at least with his family, you know, his children, his ex-wife, like there's been some hopefully some work, I imagine, some counseling or something to kind of repair that. Yeah. And I think that ultimately that's kind of where I, I, I land is that. It's not for me to say whether he should or should not, um, and it should be up to the people who were most affected, i.e. his victims, mm-hmm. and him to come up with a plan uh, for that would be restorative, right? So in, in maybe thinking about what um, what uh, the, the, the other podcast, the college students, and then he they essentially become advocates against this. It would be, you know, interesting to think about, you know, okay, what would it look like if he and his victims and two or three of them who also, who are also comedians themselves, and they're like, well, listen, this is how you hurt our careers, but you have a platform. And then what would it look like if you go and talk about these things, not by making fun of it and kind of just like poking at the bear, but, you know, really being self-revealing and what you did and giving us a platform to talk about this stuff. And again, I don't know if they would want to do that, right? But that's like a possibility that one of the beginners would be like, yeah, actually, I would like to and take you to task and talk about my experience and make light of it. And thinking about, again, our guest from last time, mm-hmm. one of the ways in which we cope with things that are scary and uh, are uncomfortable is by making light of them. So it would be interesting to see if one of the victims was able to kind of tour along with him. Uh, and use the platform that he has in order to that would be I mean that would be an interesting show shit I would go mm-hmm. to that right I would like yeah it's Louis C.K. and his victim talking about the experience and kind of being honest and, and frank about it and that's kind of what makes in a way good interesting comedy uh, absolutely uh, and and honestly if he 
Whereas before it was a pretty big fan of him. I I wouldn't want mm-hmm. to see him in in the way that things are now. I'm not saying that he should never work again or right. anything like that, but I just I wouldn't feel I wouldn't want to see him and if he was making jokes like that, I just about it that's I wouldn't like that, you know, because yeah. knowing what what really happened. So for me as someone who doesn't have the full information, I think that's just maybe the gut feeling that some of the public, although not many, because again, many people are going to see him, but, but that's what it would kind of take for me to be like, Oh, I want to hear, like you said, he has a platform and he obviously has skills to articulate things in, in certain ways that could, that could have a positive impact if that was the path that he went down, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a shame. And it's a shame, I would say, just for the victims, it was a shame for him because mm-hmm. it would perhaps allow for better growth. And I agree. And I, it's one of those things that I think one of the concerns, problems that I have with cancel, you know, cancel culture in some cases is that you, that doesn't seem just either to completely just destroy a person in a way that it can never make a living. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem right either especially just from my perspective knowing that one of the things that uh if you want people to not recidivate uh it would be to make sure that they have a job and that goes from the person you know from the the very famous person who has literally millions of dollars like louis ck might uh to the person who is you know a person who does who is unemployed or is underemployed and then engaging um, in a sexual offense, and then at some point they have to be back in our community, it is better if we provide them with tools to succeed so that they do not engage in that behavior again, because that's one of the things that is predictive of recidivism. And that directly impacts, you know, like one of the things I like about restorative justice that you said, his family and the community. mm -hmm, So it kind of goes beyond that too it's not absolutely not just for him i mean his his daughters i'm sure were hurt by this i imagine yeah Um, and you know there might be younger men mm -hmm. that him they may like him as a person and then you know decision point as they ping there's like louis ck now who's taking this path is like okay fine whatever i made my apology they want to take it or not fuck it i don't care i'm just Mm -hmm. gonna go do my thing and then they're going to be like, well, see, yeah, that's it. He tried and they didn't do it. Or be like, mm-hmm. or they could be like, okay, no, this is a better way to go about apologizing. This is a better way about amending for something you do wrong. And if I ever do that, then I can use this as a template in order to make amends. Absolutely. Which and is, isn't yeah. that, that's a model. I mean, I think, so, it, you know, I think one thing we talked about is like a real life example where it's not the same situation, but where there was sexual harassment and yeah. what seemed to be You're talking about Rick, Rick and Morty. Yeah. Dan Harmon, the That's creator exactly of Rick and Morty. Yeah. Yeah. He's... So he, I, I thought, you know, so Megan Gans used to write community with Dan Harmon and he, did you, um, so basically what had happened is that she had, I believe tweeted out something about the fact that he had sexually harassed her and he actually said, I, I talked about that without using your name on my podcast where he said like he was fixated on her at the time he thought he was in love with her. He had a girlfriend that he was living with, but he was told her that he loved her. He had, he did have power over her. She said it was damaging to her because she couldn't tell 
if her writing was good, if she was talented, and she's gone on to have a very successful career, thankfully, um, you know, despite that, but, um, but how it chipped away at her self-confidence because she didn't know if it was because he was infatuated with her or because mm-hmm. her work mm-hmm. was high quality. So then she listened to his apology, which were you able to listen to that? Yeah, yeah, actually, I did listen to it, and I... Uh... And I, the, the, I'm looking at it right now as well. The, mm-hmm. the, the text of it is, and it's awesome because it's, so Megan Gans actually, you know, she requested a public apology and got it, and then mm-hmm. to her, you know, to, in in a very sort of justice fashion, she said, you know, he did a great job, and this mm-hmm. is this was helpful. This actually helped me a lot. It helped me heal and say. Um, here we go. Yeah, this is Megan's uh, one of the one of the tweets that you put out. Yes, I only listened because I expected an apology, but what I didn't expect was the relief out of Phil just hearing him say these things actually happened. I didn't dream it. I'm not crazy. Ironic that the only person who could give me that comfort is the person I would never ask, and that almost encapsulates the uh, the experience of many people who go through the process. Is that um, the person kind of who having the person who kind of create does the harm go through the process of of giving a true uh a, not a true but a, a good apology acknowledging and then trying to make amends goes a long way to repair the person's uh hurt mm-hmm. and um, that that i think sounds so much like when i'm treating patients in therapy who have post-traumatic stress disorder mm. because of sexual assault that mm. they say they feel crazy. Yeah. And, right. you know, I think that to be told, no, this actually happened, I think, because at the time when she would tell him to stop, he acted like he wasn't doing anything wrong. And that just, I mean, that feeling is, is terrible. And I, I think, like, in the experience that I had when we were on that practicum placement together, the thing that helped me most was that, like, I came back said what happened to you and I think one other person and you're like yeah that's reportable that's you know unacceptable so it wasn't there wasn't that like middle ground and then despite what other people might say right away someone validated like no that's not okay behavior and so to hear her say that and then to say coming from him you know that that especially healed something I think that that makes a strong case for what restorative justice can do when the circumstances are right. And they're not all that way, but that that's part of the consideration too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's so, and I think that that's the part about um, his uh, apology that it stands out as, as a template, but right. So she basically said, you know, like it's, it's a masterclass in apology and it's uh it's i don't know i guess it's a shame that it doesn't get used more often yeah and i think that he i mean the thing that i thought was important about how he said it is that he was kind of like i'm just going to lay out the circumstances from now what i understand it there wasn't just like this is what happened this is what was going on and this is where i was at and i I shouldn't have done that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like he said at one point, um, I was the one writing her paychecks and right, yeah. of whether she stayed or went and whether she felt good about herself or not and said horrible things. Just treated her cruelly, 
pointedly, things I would never, ever would have done if she had been male and if I had never had those feelings for her. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's it, you're, the, the, the effective part of the apology that you are, and there are people who write about, you know, what makes a good apology, but one of it is you are acknowledging your behavior and, and the harm uh, rather than trying to shift it in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is exactly what he did. I I think that might be a good place to end the most. I guess it's a good place. Yeah, I, I think that's it. that's that's it. Yeah, I don't. It's an interesting one. I don't. Let's we need to. Uh, yeah, that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the only like the concluding thought I have is that I it would I think it might be a better discussion in the general discourse, whatever that is about these situations if there was a restorative justice lens versus like like you said a kind of all or nothing like look they did this and they're gone forever and again i understand that like i i get those feelings totally but i think that um that that can be unrealistic and i think instead if it's like look here are the expectations when you've done those things and and this is how you can make it right um it's, it's just a different I think that that might be a useful way forward with the Me Too discussion. I like that. I, I think that's a, that's a tough. It, it's a good yeah, as a concluding thought is. Well, I think part of the part of the hope is that whenever we do these shows and we talk about it in in, in the podcast, is that it kind of goes out and you know the idea is picked up by you know one or two million people. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, podcast. We like and, to, to keep it real. And this spreads like a corona. Too soon. <laughs> Was that too soon, America? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we ha- we didn't have as many hahas as we usually do in our Fairly show. Serious, but a fair situation. number of hahas nonetheless. I managed to make a joke about the coronavirus. Hey, that's not easy to do. It's not. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe five years from now. Yeah, but... let's let's put that on the blooper reel, and then <laughs> and then once this is over, and then you know. Time, you know, tragedy plus time. <laughs> in this case, we had to put in a multiplier <laughs> number. I, I actually don't think it's too soon. I, as you know, I'm a fan of humor to cope, so I think it's exactly. fine. Exactly. Well, On that, that note, <laughs> let's, let's just cut it. Let's cut it. Mm-hmm.